to another episode of the Content Lab. I am your host, Liz Murphy, Director of Web and Interactive Content for Impact. This episode is sponsored by my very dear friends at Verblio, a platform for businesses and digital marketing teams who are looking for a partner in co-creating deeply personal and powerful content to fuel your strategies. With a deep bench of diverse industry experts and writers, Verblio is your solution for expert content writing services. Although personally, I'm a huge fan of its seamless integration with HubSpot, which makes publication of your content a breeze. By the way, Content Lab listeners get an exclusive offer with Verblio that's 25% off your first month and 10 free topics. To learn more about this exclusive deal, go to verblio.com forward slash content lab. Once again, that is V-E-R-B-L-I-O.com forward slash content lab to learn more. Enjoy the episode. Hello, John Becker. How are you? Good morning, Liz. I'm well. How are you? I am super. We are both wearing hooded sweatshirts. I am so excited because many, actually, I don't think anybody knows who you are because you are new to the Impact family or new-ish. What is it, over a month now? This is the end of my sixth week. <laughs> That's so exciting. Um, and it's going to be... I'm so excited for this episode, everybody, because this is going to be the most epically meta and content nerdy episode because John Becker, I'm going to turn it over to you because you're our new editorial content associate, but why don't you tell people a little bit about what you do and who you are? Sure. Well, first off, it is rainy outside, so it is the perfect weather for a hooded sweatshirt. It feels cozy. Um, So I am new at Impact. As I said, I've just finished my sixth week. Um, in the past, I worked as a writer, um, an editor, a tutor, a teacher, a curriculum director, a few different things in a few different places in uh, the United States and abroad, and have recently moved back to Connecticut and um, joined the editorial staff at Impact to produce content and to help make the content that is produced by others to be the best it can be. Um, so I've been interviewing people, editing work, writing, ghostwriting, et cetera, over these last six weeks. And it's been awesome. And this is my first time guest starring on a podcast. So I am. It's going to be very fun. And I think your transition is actually very interesting. You know, we talk a lot uh, in our own content at Impact about how, you know, there is this urge for people to, or businesses rather, to hire content specialists, managers, from within their own industry, right? You know, that they really want someone who already understands the business. And we always are like, no, 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 no. Hire for the skill sets first. They will naturally come to understand what it is that you do uh, through just the virtue, through just doing their job by doing the interviews and by doing all those things. And you had that similar thing where you have prior to working at Impact, you had not been in the marketing space before. That's correct. And I was thinking about what I was calling the wisdom of the outsider. And I think outsiders are able to provide wisdom, not by what they say, but by what they ask. And, uh, you know, just being from, uh, you know, new to an office, but also new to an industry, it prompts a lot of questions that on my part are really genuine. You know, why do we do this this way? Um, You know, why are things organized the way that they are? And sometimes those, that, those questions produce answers that are, you know, really well-informed and, and very helpful for me. And sometimes they produce 
introspection in the people I'm asking, sort of, well, I don't know why we do it that way, or we, we've always done it that way, or we've been meaning, of, of meaning to talk about how we organize that, but we've never kind of gotten back to it. So I, I think just the, um, just the fact that someone is an outsider offers a perspective that is, I think, fundamentally impossible for someone who comes from within um, the office, certainly, and, and maybe even within the industry. I would agree with that. And that actually segues quite nicely into the topic that we're going to be discussing today, which is the most meta of meta. I'm going to be interviewing you about interviewing subject matter experts. At times I might also interview you about your interviewing of me about. I've had enough time with you to know that you are a sneaky sneak when it comes to your little you know, they, they seem like the most innocuous questions. And then you realize 10 minutes later that you've given John Becker, like an entire life story, a narrative arc, like all of these things where you're like, I didn't know I had all of these feelings inside of me, which is why I wanted to talk to you specifically. Because so maybe I missed a career potential as a private investigator or something. Or you could have gone and worked on like This American Life. <laughs> But so many people, when they think of interviewing, they really think it from the perspective of, you know, okay, so ask who the audience is, and they get very tactical with the types of questions they ask. And so today, I really want to dive deeply into more of the the nuances of interviewing and what it really means to get great content out of someone. Because I read so many articles that talk about how to interview subject matter experts, and I always find them to lack that that backbone of well, you, some of the stuff we're going to get into, the relationship building and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. But I want to start this conversation by asking you, what do you think is the one thing that most people get wrong about interviewing? I think we tend to, to believe that interviewing has to follow a script, that we begin with a list of questions. Those questions are extended to the subject beforehand in most cases. And so um, in their mind, they've constructed answers, gathered information that seems relevant to where, uh, to all the questions that are presented. Um, and ultimately, I think interviewing is more, as, as you alluded to, about building rapport, about being curious and having a conversation. And I think from the interviewer side that can sometimes make our work on the back end more difficult. It's, it's more difficult to turn a conversation into a piece um, than it is to turn a very clear list of questions and answers into a piece. You know, but ultimately I, I think the, what comes out of it is more genuine um, because it's, it's impossible to fully anticipate where a conversation will go. And I, I think being open to those various pathways yields a better end result. Yeah, I, I would agree with that too. And, and just full disclosure, so when you went through the hiring process, you know, one of the things that we have as part of our hiring process is anybody who works for us has to go through something called a situational activity, which essentially is, I mean, it, it is as advertised. We have people go through an approximation of a typical task that, that they would have to complete through the course of their work should they be hired into that role. So for this editorial content associate position, we had all um, candidates who had gotten to a certain level interview me about a topic. 
And I thought, I remember one of the things that really stood out to me with you was what you just discussed, which was rapport building. Because I have been an interviewer and I have been an interviewee a number of times. And I think the thing that people take for granted to your point about that rapport building piece, yes, the work may be a little bit more difficult on the back end of it, but you're going to get a better final product out of it, is that when people didn't take the time to build rapport with me, just dove right into the questions, I could feel myself physically and mentally stiffen. You know, I stopped being me and I started putting on this posture of, oh, I need to be the expert and I need to have the right answers instead of speaking in a way that is natural. And that's mm -hmm. really important to get to the heart of, especially if you're interviewing with the point of either doing a transcript that sounds human or you're ghostwriting as that person. Absolutely. Uh, and, and I think as you, as you allude, it is a, a two-way street and, um, it is both the interviewer and the interviewee. Rapport comes from both, and um, obviously that can change depending on the situation. But I think it's something I just kind of do by nature. When I meet people at a party, I, I tend to just kind of ask about them and what they're interested in. Um, and I'm happy to share about my own interests as well. Um, but I think it comes from just a sort of general place of curiosity, of wanting to know people and, and wanting to know what makes them tick. So I was a dual English and anthropology major. So I think I have a, a pretty healthy and, and insatiable interest for the stories that we tell and, and the cultures that, that bring it, you know, what, what, how our environments shape us into who we are. And um, not that I'm necessarily approaching these in, in you know, an academic way, but I think um, my mind functions in a way that I, I kind of want to know. And my, role here at Impact is sort of highlighted by the fact that I don't know a lot about content marketing. I think I'm learning a lot, but I am the outsider who is asking questions. Tell me more about that. How did you learn that? What brought you to this place? How'd you make that decision? And those sorts of questions, I think, yield, um, they're disarming to the people you're talking to just by nature. People want to talk about themselves by nature. Typically. I do like to talk about myself. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, someone's ready to listen and you're ready to talk. You know, that's a great pairing. So, you know, we talked about what happens on the back end. You know, I think there are some things that happen on the front end as well, which is when I interviewed you in the interview process, again, meta upon meta. Meta upon meta. It's a hat on a hat. We had never met. I had read some of your work online. So I think I had a little bit idea of your voice. But um, we were doing this over a video call and we um, had never met before. So that was starting from square one. But in most cases, you're at least starting from square one and a half, if not you know, square two or something. So now at Impact, typically when I'm interviewing people, I'm not meeting them for the first time. And I might not necessarily know them very well or I might not have developed an incredible rapport with them. But I think they've probably come up, uh, you know, come into contact with my work or um, had a conversation with me so that it doesn't feel as though you're sitting down across the chair from or across the table from someone who has, uh, you know, is, is a stranger. So I have a point and then a question. Um, I, I completely agree with you, but I will say one thing that I've noticed, the rapport building actually serves for me at least two functions because you are going to run into people like me who do like to talk. 
I need to talk to the right person and I need to feel comfortable doing so, but I do genuinely like talking about what I'm doing. But then you also have those people who are actually like, they're incredible at what they do, but they are uncomfortable expressing themselves. Like they don't feel like they have something to contribute or they've never really thought about it that way. Or maybe there's someone where just, you know, speaking and articulating their ideas on the fly isn't something that comes naturally to them. In fact, that was something I had to get really comfortable with because I always put myself out there as a writer first. Sure, I'll give you an off-the-cuff spontaneous response, but can I edit it eight times first? <laughs> Is that an option? So I think the rapport building there really helps with just getting people out of their own head and making them feel like, oh, I'm just talking to someone. I'm not having to be that person who's like, I'm the expert and all of my answers must be perfect and there shouldn't be back and forth. I should just give them what they need. And, you know, I'm not even sure what I'm supposed to be saying right now. Um, but my question to you is tactically, what does that look like? So you and I are going back and forth and saying, oh, rapport building and rapport building. But often that comes down to something that I actually hate, which is small talk. I am bad at it. I'm always like, so the weather in this elevator is something else, right? Like I'm really bad at it. But what, what do you do tactically that is rapport building? Is it like, hi, how are you? Or do you start with facts or like, what are, what are the things that you do to build rapport in those first few critical minutes? So I wanted to answer that in uh, a little bit of a roundabout way. So I promised to come back, but I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you brought up writing because I was thinking about this as I edited yesterday edited a couple pieces, long form and short form and news reactions, um, and that were in various stages of um, polish. And I was thinking about how many different ways there are to be good at writing. And there are people who I think are naturally very fluid and smooth and engaging with their prose, but it might not be, um, it might not be substantive. So you might you know, get through a page or two and, and have enjoyed it, but not really gotten anything out of it. And there are other people you know, on the other end of the spectrum. And I don't think we need to necessarily dichotomize a spectrum. It's, you know, it's more complex than that. But there are people on, uh, on the other side who tend to sort of, um, you know, they're, they're great at communicating information. They're gonna get all the facts down and, and be sort of, uh, you know, full of, of the sort of content, but the presentation of that content is going to be stiff or um, wordy or overbearing or anything that content heavy work can be. And, you know, finding that balance is um, key to producing good work. There isn't one right way to do it. There are lots of ways to do it. But uh, I think coaching that writer on one side and that writer on the other side to sort of move towards the middle or helping them move towards the middle, I think is the goal of an editor. And I, I think to come back to your question and, and why that metaphor feels relevant to me is that there are people who are really comfortable with small, with small talk. And they're great at, at the sort of chit chat that feels a little bit like a, you know, a, a first date or a meet and greet or something like that. And so I, I think it is the goal of the interviewer to acknowledge that sort of skill set and steer it towards the content that you're after, you know, the answers that you're after. So you're enjoying the conversation, but at some point it needs to kind of become substantive. And I think someone who is comfortable with small talk, I think that's almost easier uh, because that goes a long way towards rapport building. 
The other side of the spectrum, I think, is people who, you know, maybe aren't as comfortable with that chit chat, who are more reserved for whatever reason. Maybe it's like you said, they, they are, uh, you know, they want to be able to kind of edit their responses and get their responses as polished and as, as perfect as possible. Or they might be, uh, you know, like in my analogy of writing, someone who is, is going to have all the facts and figures, is going to have all the, um, the information behind what they're talking about, but might not be, uh, you know, willing or, or able or um, excited to share that in a way that's very um, digestible and, um, and compelling. And so I think the, the role of the interviewer, uh, and I don't know that I necessarily have a, a list of action items for it because I think it's largely intuitive, but I think it has to move um, between uh, situations so that we take the, you know, we take what we're being given and sort of steer it towards where we need it. And that sounds more manipulative than I'm trying to make it. Um, but it does to me feel a little bit like, you know, a first date and I'm married and have been married for a long time. So it's been a while since I've dated, but those, uh, you know, just getting to know someone and kind of making them, um, you know, ma making them connect with you. I remember I used to, when I taught AP English in high school, we would do um, radio essay projects where kids would produce this, the second time this has come up, this American life type radio essays. And, uh, you know, I would say to them, um, you know, you sort of have to have to perform with, with a smile. You know, you have to kind of make the audience like you, make them care. Um, because once they're bought in, they're going to completely go along with you. Um, but there is a sort of uh, a personality that has to come to any kind of interaction in order for it to not feel, like you said, stiff and rigid and reserved and formulaic. Interesting. So let me ask you a question then, because you said the interaction that you had with me was not the typical, meaning like you usually aren't starting from square one, you don't know somebody. So how did you approach building rapport with me? Well, I think what you gave was the opposite of what you might have been describing, which is someone who isn't, um, you know, isn't willing to meet you halfway. Hmm. And we did start from scratch, so to speak, but you were very warm and welcoming and engaging with me. So I was able to sort of engage back with you. And I think I, I didn't need to, um, you know, perform any, any interview gymnastics to get you to share. I had a list of um, really like three, three or four questions. Mm -hmm. uh, and everything else that I did was, um, in, in reaction to what you had said or what you had shared. Well, you Everything. bring up a good point there, though. It's kind of, it comes down to mirroring a little bit. Yes. It, it, because I've noticed, because you're right, there's no, there's no, like, ask this question and then ask this question and then say this thing and congratulations, you've built rapport. You kind of have to go in and within the first 30 seconds get a vibe for, like, mentally where is their headspace at? And then, like, for me, for example, I have a very big personality. So I always find that when I go into certain interview situations, if I haven't interviewed somebody before and I'm not 100% sure of mentally where they're at, I try to bring it down a few notches. I try to meet them at their energy level yes. and then slowly build them back up. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, and I think there are lots of obvious and subtle ways to 
do things like that. Um, and, you know, again, you could probably write a list or, or try to you know, write a book or a dissertation on it. Um, but a lot of it is, frankly, kind of intuitive. You know, but I was thinking about, I, I interviewed Bob Rufla, our, our CEO, um, last week. And um, sometimes when I do interviews, they're over video calls and sometimes they're face to face. But in, in one interview I had, not the one with Bob, but an earlier one, just because I couldn't completely uh, orchestrate the situation how I wanted to, it ended up being uh, me sitting across a table from the person I was interviewing. And, uh, you know, I, I think even like the architecture of, in, of the interview matters. And to me, if I'm sitting across from someone, I have a computer and a, and a notepad and a clipboard and I'm, you know, clicking my pen out. Um, there's something about that that feels, in my mind, already rigid. Like there, there, there is literally uh, an oppositional setup between the subject and me. And, you know, I have something on my screen and something in my, um, my pad of paper that they can't see, which, you know, it's, it's a little bit, um, I think, off-putting. And when I set up the interview with Bob a, a few days later, you know, I, I led into it um, with a setup of, of two comfy chairs that were not facing each other, but kind of angled towards each other. So it felt more like we were sitting on a stage in front of an audience, or maybe even that we were sitting in a living room. And, you know, suddenly just the way that the room is set up moves from feeling like oppositional, I'm on one side, you're on another, like this is an interview in the, in the job sense or in the, you know, something like that to let's talk, let's talk about stuff. You know, we have some topics to come to. Um, you know, I have a few questions that I really want to get to, but um, let's sit down, block out some time and talk. And I, I think little details like that are the sort of intangibles that can go a long way towards creating a situation that is rapport building as opposed to oppositional. I would agree with that. And, and, and I love that point because you're really segueing toward these these, these interviewing techniques that I think a lot of people take for granted, or, you know, a lot of new content managers, they have the raw skill sets, you know, they're, they've come out of J school, or they've been in communications, or, you know, they've done something where interviewing is a skill set, it's still developing. And they don't think about the fact that it's, it's so much also in where you physically put people. Like if you think about people who do public speaking and similar to you, I'm going to, I'm going to say, I promise I'm getting to a point in a roundabout way. But I remember when I first started public speaking, I would always wear outfits where I'm like, this makes me look professional. This makes me look good, but I was never actually comfortable in it. And so I always found myself on stage, like tugging or pulling because I'm very tall. So shirts, they have to be long in order to actually do the job. And then I was always worried, like, is it riding up? Is it doing this? I don't like skirts. I don't like heels. Like, I don't like all of these things. And so it would actually end up being a distraction. I would be uncomfortable. I wouldn't actually perform the way I needed to perform on stage because I was concerned about all these artificial restrictions I'd put on myself because I thought that's how it was supposed to be. And when I think about interviewing, I think about it much in the same way. You don't think about how much you're setting yourself up, not necessarily for failure, because I feel like that's a melodramatic term for what we're talking about, but you're adding artificial roadblocks that don't need to be there by not thinking about like where you're doing it. So I do a different podcast actually for Marilyn Beer, and they always ask me like, where do you want to record when I go to the brewery? And I'm like, wherever you're most comfortable, like where's your favorite spot in the brewery? Let's just go there. 
And they're like, oh, it's echoey. I'm like, I'll figure it out. This is not your problem. Like, let's just go where you want to sit. And usually it, it never looks that visually appealing. It's always like some random office chairs next to a pile of pallets and like beer cases. And then we'll like prop the mic up somewhere. <laughs> but everybody feels really comfortable because it's their space and it's where exactly. they are. So when I do stuff at Impact, if I ever have to interview people at Impact while I'm in the office, I'll say, where do you want to go? If I'm not able to find a place where I feel like I can govern, as you put it, the architecture of the interview. 100%. I think ultimately what we want is the interviewer to feel, or the interviewee to feel comfortable. Both, I suppose, but that's, that's not what I meant. Um, and how we do that goes a long way to building rapport. And I think, like you said, what we're wearing uh, is, is huge. It goes back to those sort of, the, those subtle and, and maybe even intangible um, details that, that really matter. And I think if you don't want an interview to be formulaic, don't follow a formula. And mm -hmm. I think if, if you say, I'm going to ask you 10 questions. I sit here, you sit there. It's going to take exactly 30 minutes. I'll get the transcript to you by tomorrow for your okay. You know, all of those details make it feel like a formula. Make it feel as though you're sort of literally checking off boxes. I've asked this, I've asked that, I've, I've asked that. Um, and I think, I know we all have fast-paced lives and we don't always have uh, the room in our schedule for, you know, open-ended conversations. But I think book out more time than you need. Oh, yeah. Spend a few minutes just talking before you turn on any kind of mic and do what, what it takes to make the person feel comfortable. If they want a list of questions, great, send it along. Um, you know, but I think if you say, you know, you kind of fail because you think you have to um, reach a certain, you know, it has to last for 30 minutes, or if you, um, you know, your clock is running out and you think, okay, well, I, I'd have to kind of get through these last few questions because they're on my list. Um, you know, those are, those are small things that make the person feel less comfortable one mm -hmm. way or another and probably make you feel less comfortable as well in the process. Um, you know, this feels maybe a little bit iconoclastic, but, you know, an interview shouldn't feel like an interview to be an interview. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's the ultimate, you know, meta description, but it should feel like a, like a discussion. And if you are in a content management um, or, or consultant role, especially if you feel like you are an outsider or you're young and you're fresh out of college, uh, it can sometimes be intimidating to sit down with someone who is older than you or is higher up than you or, or anything like that. Um, and I don't know that I necessarily have a magic bullet for making those sorts of worries go away. Mm -hmm. It certainly gets easier the more you do it. Um, but the more it feels like an interview, the probably worse it will go, I would guess. Yeah, that's always a challenge. I remember when I first started doing subject matter interview or subject matter expert interviews um, back at Quintain, which was the agency I worked at before Impact. Um, I remember I would feel very nervous going into those interviews with C-level executives because often they were people I didn't have the luxury of sitting down with face-to-face -face because I was a content manager for an agency who did interviews for our clients who were not there. So it was always from square one. It was always in an industry that I wasn't familiar with. It was always somebody who probably was leaps and bounds above where I was pay scale wise and, and expertise and experience wise. You know, it was always these, these foreign to me conversations. And the way I, the only piece of advice I can give is that 
you have to come at it from the approach of like, I don't usually explicitly say you are the expert. I am here to learn from you, but I usually try to say things like, and, and I think it comes back to what you said before. You have to have a genuine curiosity to learn about things. It, you may end up leaving and being like, well, okay, I learned that that was boring, but we move on with our lives. <laughs> um, but I, you have to express in some way, and I found this really helps when you're speaking up or interviewing up. Say, so I'm really genuinely interested to learn about this because I know you have a lot of experience in this. So you really kind of approach it, not necessarily as an expert yourself in interviewing, but as someone who wants to be a student of whatever it is that this person is talking about. Absolutely. Everyone is an expert. Everyone. And I think you could interview any person you pass in the street and, and they would know things that you don't know. And mm -hmm. I, I completely agree. Like if we are um, in awe of their resume or their salary or their title or something, you know, that can be intimidating, but you know, it is just a person who has had experiences that have led him or her to that chair in front of you or that chair next to you. And in some ways it's no different than if you were interviewing again, that person on the street, something, um, there's uh, a well-known Instagram, uh, account called humans of New York, which is, uh, huge in which this man who I think used to be in insurance goes out and he interviews people on the street and he does this all over the world and it's um, wildly popular and, and he has this amazingly disarming way of talking to people who you know might have been famous authors or physicists or, or doctors or people who are homeless and um, down on their luck or, or children or anything um, but he brings to it the idea that, that their story matters uh, and that he's not in a rush. He's, he's just there to listen. Uh, and, and what he's able to get out of these subjects is, is amazing. It's amazing. And none is more compelling than the other. You know, the story of the, of the CEO is, is no, uh, has no more value than the story of the, of the beggar. Um, and I think if, if you approach interviews with that sort of mentality, then you yield a, a human portrait that is, um, you know, more important than a, a title or a salary or a, uh, a resume. Mm -hmm. So I would ask you, Liz, if you'll allow me to flip the sign. Being, uh, being a remote employee, you probably in all cases, or at least the vast majority, are doing interviews over video calls or mm -hmm. over, over phone calls. And a lot of what I'm talking about is assuming the luxury that you're sitting down with someone in the flesh. Mm -hmm. And um, so how do you approach interviews with something that I would see as a natural barrier? <laughs> it's so funny too, because unlike a lot of, I would say traditional content managers, because I came from, you know, agencies for a long time didn't have, any content managers. I would say that's only something that's becoming much more prevalent. You know, they don't, they didn't hire people like us in the past. You know, they would hire, you know, multidisciplinary marketing strategists who also knew how to write. But as the industry has evolved, a requirement for our skill sets has become more in demand. The thing about the agency setting, however, which you alluded to is the fact that it, it, it is remote. 
So it's so funny because I'm a remote employee here. So most of my interviews are, are done the way we're doing this recording right now. You know, we, we use Zoom video conferencing. But when I first started out, I did everything over the phone. I basically had like the worst possible scenario. Like, ideally, you want to be in person. You want to be somewhere comfortable. You want to be able to build rapport with someone, which is easier to do when they can see you. And in fact, most of the people I interviewed, like they didn't even know what I looked like. I was a voice on the phone. <laughs> and that was a big challenge for me. Um, it, so here are a couple of things. First of all, you can't never apologize for the setting. Never apologize for the setting. Um, I, I always, I, I try to treat it like the way I did with high school theater. Like you may want to poop your pants with fear because there are like hundreds of people in front of you and you're supposed to be doing some, you know, soliloquy from Gertrude from, or by Gertrude from Hamlet. And you're like panicking, which is a thing that happened in high school where you have to walk out there. Like you own the energy in the room and you have to always act that way. You don't act like, you don't act like a jerk or a douche. Like don't, don't be <laughs> the ego in the room, but you have to act like you own the setting. Has so, presence. Yeah. You have to come on there and go, you know, I'm very excited to speak with you today. This is how the process works. So I always tried to be confident in the process and set the expectation of what we were going to be doing that day, kind of what you alluded to as well. And then I also just open it and say, you know, hey, do you have any questions about the process or any, especially if it's their first time with me? And then at that point, I try to do, I think something you see me do actually in person, whereas I try to start infusing a bit of my personality into the questions, because as much as I'm trying to get them to open up to me and be humans so I can write like them as a human, so people on the internet like them and remember them. I also need them to like me mm -hmm. like content managers have to be some of the most likable people on the planet because we literally are going into your brain, making you do things you don't want to do, making you do what is essentially homework that is outside of your primary job description. And you have to walk away from it feeling like that was valuable. And I want to do that again. <laughs> and that's like, so when you said earlier, it's a bit of manipulation. I mean, it's benevolent manipulation, but it is a hundred percent manipulation. Like, and I do that from the, I'm, but I'm manipulating for the greater good in that I want you to like me because I genuinely like you. And I genuinely believe you can bring something to the table and tell a great story and all of that stuff. But a lot of that, it, like you have to find a way to cheat your personality into the conversation because you have to be memorable because you can't go back and build rapport all over again just because you stuck to the script. So a lot of it is mirroring like we've discussed, but I do try to build the energy up. I try to get them to laugh a little bit. In fact, some of the like marketing stand-up comedy that I think that's what Mariah calls it, who's on our team, she's our client success specialist, that came out of trying to loosen people up a little bit. And you don't have a lot of ammunition when you're not in front of a person or they can't even see you. Like there, there's very little to work with there. Now, granted, you've got to know how to read the proverbial room. Like if you're not a comedian or if you're not funny or if, you know, this person is obviously not going to respond well, like don't do it, but you have to find ways to infuse your personality. So alternatively, if, you know, trying to get them to laugh a little doesn't work, you know, if they mention any personal anecdotes that you can relate to, like, oh, I also have children or, you know, oh my gosh, you know, my dog, <laughs> absolutely. Same thing, you know, like finding little ways to 
build the connection between you two. So it's a relationship. So I had to really lean heavily on that when I first started now. And with video conferencing, it's gotten a lot easier. Um, because to your point, you know, obviously we try to record everything. I highly, I highly, highly recommend not relying on note taking because it'll immediately take you out of the conversation. You won't capture their quotes. It's just not going to work. You need to record it. Um, but we used to use a solution called Uber conferencing, which was a conferencing service, but it still was like, you'd just see like their headshot. Like there was no video. Mm. Zoom has made it a lot easier. And I think the fact that people are very comfortable talking with to me already just in conversation and in meetings makes it feel more like, oh, we're just having another conversation and the objective this time is her asking me questions about a topic. Right. Um, but I do try to have a little fun with it. Again, it's kind of knowing your personality. You know, like my personality is predisposed toward being that way. You know, I am, I am goofy. I, I'm very good at what I do, but I like to make people feel comfortable and happy and, and make them feel uplifted and come away walking, come away from that experience feeling like that was good. But people can do that in a variety of different ways. Like with you, you have a very calm demeanor. You are extremely disarming. You're like a little interview ninja. And you find ways of making people, yeah, that's right. Your little ninja swipes, I see you. You know, you find ways of, in your quiet way, of having a conversation and having fun with somebody. So I think it really is about knowing yourself and knowing who you are. You have to have a really strong sense of what you do well as a human before you can really start doing it. I don't know if that, that ramble answered your question, but I hope it did. <laughs> no, that was, that was fantastic. Uh, you know, I, I think about how we've talked so much in this conversation about being genuine and sort of having this very sincere um, aspect to what you're bringing to um, any interview. But I think we're both acknowledging that there is a kind of fake it till you make it um, mm -hmm. sort of uh, thing that's going on as well too, that, um, you know, sometimes you have to manufacture or play up that rapport, that confidence, that, um, you know, that sort of jokey side of your demeanor. And I think that's, a, I think, an important lesson, too, that no matter what's going on in your day or no matter what's going on in your life, you have to sort of, like you said, read the room and match that person's energy to bring it where it needs to be. Um, and be able to sort of shut off the other, you know, you might've just had another interview that went great or went poorly, or you might've just had a, it could be a sales call or a, anything else that might've been a success or a, a failure. Um, but being able to sort of draw a line and step over it and start, um, you know, bringing the best parts of yourself to this, uh, to this interview that's before you and, and shutting out what's come before and, and what's come after, I think is a skill set that's, really important um, because we don't, we're not always in the perfect headspace to uh, conduct an interview, but we might have to conduct an inter interview when the worst thing has just happened to us or the best thing has just happened to us. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I, 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 I know that what I'm about to say will freak some people out if they're not comfortable with interviewing yet in a content management role, but your interview subjects can smell fear. <laughs> they know it. They know when you're not confident in the process. They know when you're not prepared. Or, well, actually, that's not true. They know what you allow them to see. You are fully in control of the tone you set. And again, like the tone that you set with your interviews is vastly different from mine. 
but fundamentally the core is the same. Mm -hmm. We approach interviews, even if in our head we're like, oh God, I'm worried about this interview. I've, you know, I, I don't know if this is going to work. I'm not sure about the topic. I haven't interviewed this person before. Even if we have this like laundry list of grievances and insecurities going into an interview, like I'm trying a new process. Will this work? I don't know. Oh my God. I've never, you know, this person I'm talking to freaks me out because they're really smart. And like, if I screw this up, I'm screwed. You know, things like that. You can't show any of that. You have to be calm. Because anything that you project emotionally that is negative, they will read it and they will react to it. And they can react to it very negatively sometimes. Yeah, and the end result will just not be as good. No. So and let's, I, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna, so finish it. And, and the way that, that I typically prepare for, for an interview that feels substantive. That was I, literally gonna be my question, by the way. I was just <laughs> about to ask you how you prepare. Okay. This I, I, I do try to do the research that's necessary. I do try to read um, things that the person has written or, or uh, you know, just sort of get a, a sense of how they write and how they communicate to have a sense of where this might go. Um, and I write questions. And I write questions that, in my mind, follow a linear path. But I also write sub-questions that might be digressions or tangents that go off of a question about it. Um, I do keep a clipboard and, and you know, take sparse notes, but sometimes that feels like more of a prop than an actual tool. Uh, it's just something that I kind of have, but, you know, maybe I'll, I'll, I might have the list of questions on there or I might have some kind of outline on there. And if something feels emphatic or um, something key, you know, I might, I might write that down. And, um, having a clipboard allows me to the freedom to kind of, you know, draw arrows or circle things, connect things that might be more difficult in a, uh, in a digital document. Um, but I, I think it's important to, you know, prepare with a list of questions, but not be wedded to any of them. You know, that, that uh, if you don't get to all of your questions, that can often be a blessing. That, that often means that the conversation was a fruitful one or it went in a direction that you might not have anticipated. And in almost any situation, as I just cut you off from doing, at the end, the interviewer might, the interviewee might say, you know, is there anything else or anything else you want to touch on? Or, mm -hmm. uh, and you might say that to him or her as well, which gives you a chance to look through and say, oh, I did really want to ask about this. Um, or to, to acknowledge that it went in a direction that you didn't necessarily anticipate. And I think largely that that's probably okay. Um, as we talked before, there is a, a pre-process and a, a post-process. And part of that post-process is often reaching out to that person again, saying, um, you know, could you give me a little bit more about this? Or, um, you know, I want to make sure I, I have this just right. So it's a dialogue that continues after the microphone stops. And as we've said before, often starts before the microphone starts. And so if you feel like it goes in a way that you um, didn't anticipate, that's often not a bad Hey all, did you hear the good news? As a listener of the Content Lab, you have access to an exclusive offer from my listeners from Verblio, the only expert content writing services platform you'll ever need. It includes 25% off your first month with Verblio, as well as 10 free topics. So what are you waiting for? Go to verblio.com forward slash content lab to learn more about this exclusive deal. Once again, that's V-E-R-B-L-I-O.com forward slash content lab.
find your preparation process interesting because it sounds like you actually do research in two ways. So you research the subject matter a little bit, but then you also research the expert a little bit as well. I'm very curious when you're doing the research on the expert. So you're going out and reading things that have written in the past. What are you looking for? I, I think it's just a process of, of trying to recognize and internalize a voice and a style. Now it depends on what I'm doing with this interview. If I'm just turning it in, into into I'm turning it into an interview um, and publishing it that way, or if I'm writing as the person, or if I'm uh, you know writing an article with that person as the expert. Um, in any case, I, I just want to learn more about the person. And if I don't have them in front of me at my disposal to spend time with, the best way I can do that is to see what they've produced. So if there's uh, video content or or written content. Um, that I can consume that just gets me into that person's uh, mindset and, and voice in a way that I think is ultimately beneficial. Hmm, interesting. About how much time do you spend doing this initial research? Do you have like, is it like around 30 minutes, an hour? Does it really ebb and flow depending on what you're doing? I would say that it's not a single block of time. Mm-hmm. So if I know that I have an interview coming up, I might initially kind of sketch out a couple ideas and those might become uh, more refined or uh, more expanded as it becomes closer. Um, and then ultimately probably, you know, the night before or the day before, I would try to have that list um, finalized um, or list of, of topics or questions. Uh, yeah, I would say half an hour to an hour if you mm -hmm. were to kind of, but it's often kind of, oh yeah, you know, as, as I'm doing something else, I think, oh, I, you know, I should write down that this ask Liz or, or mm -hmm. um, I want to make sure that Liz gets to this. So let me make a note of that. Um, so for me, it's having a Google Doc uh, that, um, you know, lists some topics or some questions. And ultimately, I find that something like that is really useful when you ultimately go back to a transcript. A transcript mm -hmm. can sometimes feel like a, um, an overwhelming um, block of text. Uh, and so having some questions, um, if, I, if I know there's a topic that I want to write about uh, or, or that I, you know, I think is, is really important going back into that transcript because those are organized by my questions allows me to kind of find things more, um, more quickly that might be germane to whatever I'm writing about. Hmm. So let's switch gears a little bit. You and I have both been in interviews, I'm sure, where you've got your questions, you've done your research, you've done your research on the person, you've done your research on the subject. You actually haven't sat down with this person before, but you know them. Like you're not starting from square one, or maybe you are, it doesn't really matter. And the questions aren't triggering the waterfall. You know what I mean? You know how, you know how there's always that moment where you can see the light flip on and you're like, I've got them. Like they're, they're, they're giving... They're, they're getting there with me. They're giving me what I need. We're in a good spot. But then sometimes there are some people who manage to turn non yes or no questions into yes or no questions. <laughs> and how do you manage the, what I will call it? Cause sometimes it's not intentional. Some people are just this way. Mm -hmm. Accidentally or consciously uncooperative interview subject. I think in my mind, and I'll, I'll ask you for your process in a minute, um, you know, it becomes a sort of scattershot approach to if there's a question that I really want to ask or really want to know the answer to, I, um, 
and the initial question is yielding only, you know, a one sentence answer um, or something or yes or no, as you said, in my mind, it's, it's sort of a, um, you know, attack it from all sides sort of mentality. So if the, if the answer is really short, then, you know, I think it's natural to back up and to literally say, okay, well, back up, tell me how you guys made that decision. Or um, did you know that it was going to happen in this way? And obviously it's hard when we're talking about a, a hypothetical question, but I, I would attack the exact same topic and attack is the wrong verb, but I would attack the exact same topic from a bunch of different angles because if it's a, if it's an, a, an important topic, being able to ask uh, the questions that do kind of trigger that waterfall or at least generate enough one sentence answers that they can be amalgamated into a sufficient response you know, that, that's, that's a acceptable substitute, I think. But I would, um, I think there's a natural tendency if you're nervous and if something seems to not be going well to sort of be like, okay, moving on and just sort of feeling like that's a dead end. And I think if something feels like a dead end, it's possible it's something the person doesn't want to talk about or, you know, a situation could, could exist like that, you know, but ultimately I, I think kind of not moving on and skipping that is, is probably um, the right thing. I think sort of turning your attention back to that question, asking it in a different way, or asking pieces of it, or things that lead up to whatever thing you're asking about, or, or the, you know, how did you feel afterwards, or had this ever happened before, or what were you anticipating? You know, those sorts of questions can give enough information that the response feels lucid and complete. Mm-hmm. So what do you think? Thank you, by the way, for giving me a heads up. And I'm like, oh, I have to talk about my process. Okay. All right. What is my process? Um, also, I love the verb attack because I just imagined you like having a machete in an interview. And like when you decide or yes, or a bow and arrow and like you decide a question isn't working, you pick up the sheet of paper and just slice it in half and put the machete away again. Um, but so my process for it really depends on the situation because sometimes you end up in a dead end street for a number of reasons. But I will say at the blanket, like generalized advice or my generalized process is I'll ask one of three questions. Why? What do you mean by that? And give me an example. Now it's interesting, however, is the last question is not a question. It is a statement. I've noticed sometimes with certain people, now again, this is going to be very much dependent on the scenario and the situation. We are just trying to give you tactics that you can pull from like a toolbox, depending on what's happening in front of you. But sometimes if you give people an out not to answer your question, like if I were to say to you, can you give me an example of that? You could easily come back and say, it gives you more permission to come back and say to me, no, I not really think of a good one. But yeah. if you give me an example of that, it puts more onus on them to deliver. They still, they're still obviously like it's, they have free will. They still may come back and say, I can't think of one, but I've noticed when I did that little subtle switch of saying, give me an example of that instead of, can you give me an example? I now have a higher rate of substantive response. Um, why and what do you mean by that really usually gets people out of their jargon spewing. So a lot of times I will end up in a scenario where I realize, okay, this interview is going nowhere because they are just spewing to me all of the things they say every day to peers. 
Like this is, this is, you know, the, the company lines basically that I I'm getting a run of. And so I like to pull on why and what do you mean by that? Because I want people to start using their own language. And that's mm -hmm. usually, usually the trigger point for me of when an interview starts working is when they start talking like themselves and stop parroting what they're used to saying. That's usually the trip. That's the trip wire you're trying to trigger whenever you're in an interview situation. And so sometimes I, 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 I've had situations and this is something where you have to have a lot of confidence and you have to do it correctly. Otherwise it will blow up in your face. But I have had times where I have set aside and said, these questions are not working. In fact, what questions are you tired of answering about this topic? <laughs> and I will tell you one thing. There, the people who are consciously difficult are avid complainers. Avid. Mm. So find a way to get them complaining and then back your way back into your topic. <laughs> like that, it, it, and again, it comes down to this like benevolent <laughs> manipulation, but like sometimes you have to just own it. And sometimes people will get irritated if you don't acknowledge the fact that something isn't working. Again, you have to be confident. And those are very, very specific cases when you do that. But uh, that sometimes does work. Sometimes you just have to be like, well, okay. What other terrible questions are you tired of? I would uh, add to that list, and, and obviously this is hugely um, context-dependent, but I love asking people to show me. Mm -hmm. You know, show me, show me an example of that. Like, let, let's take a walk around, either a literal walk, as in let's, let's like walk around at the, the building, or let's like walk around the website or the project or the, the piece that you're making. You know? And I think... Obviously, that doesn't necessarily yield content that can make its way into an interview, but it yields, uh, like you said, that sort of human element that replaces the company line of here's what I say every day or here's what I'm kind of used to saying and allows them to, again, get into something they're passionate about or interested about. Um, and that's the, a quick step into their humanity. All right. I've got one final question for you. Are you ready? I think so. And you will probably come back with three follow-ups and I'm ready. How do you know an interview has been successful? You know, I, I think we've, uh, I've kind of danced with the illusion of, um, or not the illusion, the metaphor of these feeling like a, a sort of first date. Um, you know, you're, especially if you're starting from square one, um, you know, you're, you're trying to build some sort of rapport. You're trying to get a person to talk about themselves. Uh, you know, a lot of the things that you do when you meet anyone in, in kind of any situation, but certainly in a, in a date situation where it's just the two of you. Um, you know, I, I think an interview is successful if it feels, um, if it feels genuine, if it doesn't feel either uh, rushed or, or kind of slow and boring, you know, if it feels more like a conversation and less like an interview and you end with a smile and a handshake um, and you end up with everything as the interviewer, you end up with everything that you had hoped for and more maybe, um, you know, then it's, it's been a success. I think it's, it's only really a failure if you never um, get past the person's defenses. And, you know, we are, you know, it's not like we are um, interviewing, uh, I don't know, I, I, I once um, introduced a speaker who was the only Western journalist to 
interview Osama bin Laden. Um, and we don't have that task in front of us. We're interviewing people typically that we, that we know, we respect, um, we have some sort of rapport with. And so I think we're going into situations that will be successful if you have um, you know, done some preparation, you allow the interview to be a, a human exchange of, of ideas and, um, and information. Um, and then you end on a note that is thankful and um, you know, kind of thinking about that, that this is, uh, the interview is, is the center of a much long, longer process. So the interview, there's, there's pre-interview and post-interview um, and to acknowledge that it's part of a, a conversation that will continue in various ways is ultimately uh, the sign of success, in my opinion. What was so, that? Are you about to ask me a question? I will. I will yeah, ask you. You have a tell it. now. You have a tell. You have a tell when you're about to ask me a question. You get this glint in your eye. Like I, I don't, don't normally. But my, I would ask you the exact same thing. What's a successful interview? Or an unsuccessful one? I don't know. I can just feel it. Yeah. You can feel it. You know when it's working and you know when it's not working. The worst part is, is that when you know it's not working, you can't show that it's not working. Um, but... A successful interview for me, I think the feeling is I walk away feeling like I gave that person permission to be honest for the first time in their life about this topic hmm. in a way that is true to them. You know, they got to finally feel heard. And you know it, you can see it. Because even if they aren't an expressive person, even if they still will dread the next interview with you, you can see on their face or you can hear in their voice, depending on the circumstance, that they feel good. You can feel that. And that's a, that's a truly awesome feeling. And that's, you know, I, we've talked about all of our like little benevolent manipulations and our little toolbox of like, well, if people are being uncooperative, we're going to have to figure this out because this interview is happening whether they want it to or not. Um, but ultimately like, that's why I love doing what I do. You know, I, I goof and make a lot of jokes and yes, sometimes draw attention to myself, but it is always with the purpose of getting people comfortable enough where they can use me as the stage. My goal is to get them comfortable enough to invite them up there with me and then get out of their way. Absolutely. And that's when, you know, you know, when you've done that and you know, that feeling, and it, it, it's the best feeling in the world because you feel like you've given someone an unexpected invitation to do something they didn't think they could do. And I also love those moments when people were come to the end of it and they'll say, wow, I guess I did have more about that than I thought I did. Or, you know, I, I, I just find it interesting. I have had situations though where I've had to throw out a topic, which didn't always please the people I was working with but I could feel that like a topic that was assigned from a strategist for an expert and I was the intermediary, I could tell that it was a broken topic. And so that is always a terrifying thing. Um, but then I usually lean heavily on, tell me about the last time something went wrong or what's something somebody gets wrong about your job. And that's always a cool moment too, because even though I'm like mentally like freaking out, like everything's on fire, the topic is wrong, this isn't working. And I'm like panicking internally, trying to like scramble to find something to talk about. Cause I'm not going to just let an, I'm not going to be like, well, I guess we'll reschedule. We have another topic. Like, <laughs> but that I also find those moments really 
uplifting and success for me because once again, you show people who feel like they don't have a story to tell that they do. Yeah. And I, I love what you said about setting yourself up to sort of be the stage on which they can perform. And that to me, that speaks to what we've said throughout this or, or maybe clears up a, a, a common pitfall, which is that as much as you want it to be a conversation, it is still an interview. And so I think you have to sort of, um, you know, create the, the situation that allows a conversation to take place, but then also back out of it at the same time. And oh, yeah. That's sort of like stepping forward, stepping back. Um, that is a, a constant of a good interview because you want to feel as though it's a conversation, but it's not about you. It's, it's, it, it isn't, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, and I would say again, listening to, uh, people who are really good at this, doing it is, um, is often a, a great inspiration for, um, for that, you know, obviously a, a sort of knee jerk, um, example that comes to mind is Terry Gross on, on NPR and, and mm -hmm. she is so fantastic at, at interviewing such an incredible range of people um, and being disarming and being funny and being um, uh, deflective of, of attention all while uh, bringing these people out of themselves. Oh yeah, absolutely. Another one who's great aside from Terry Gross from Fresh Air is John Dickerson. I, I have, I, John Dickerson is a news anchor who's actually been like bouncing around CBS a lot recently. Like he, when Charlie Rose left, he went to CBS this morning and now he's at 60 Minutes. But I actually started listening to him on, through Slate's Political Gab Fest, which is a podcast. And I found his approach very interesting. In fact, you were very similar to him in that way where it's a little bit kind of academic, but he's very quiet and very approachable. And he also has this masterful poker face. Like he just has this very serene face where you don't feel like you're being, when I'm, I, what I would assume it would feel like where, on the, where I in the other chair. He has this very serene, approachable face. So nobody ever, I think, feels like they're being scrutinized or on the spot. His questions are still tough and cutting, but the tone is always approachable. The face is always approachable. And I find it very fascinating that people who are able to do interviews in that context, because it's a different type of context, right? Because in our context, we can kind of chew up a bit of the air in the front. You know, we can bring attention to ourselves in order to bring them with us. But with people like Terry Gross or John Dickerson or Ira Glass or all of those masterful interviewers, are people who do that in such a way where they are a blank canvas. They are a blank canvas that allows anybody to project themselves onto them. And that is like, that is a level of interviewing mastery that I have never, I will never get there. I don't know. <laughs> don't sell yourself short. Uh, well, um, well, anyway, this has been a fantastic conversation, John. Obviously I'm going to have to have you back so we can nerd out about stuff some more. Um, My but, <laughs> but how can people get in touch with you if they have any questions? Like say any baby content managers out there who just have, are stressing out about an interview that's coming up or one that, that may have not gone well, or if they just have questions. So I am at jbecker, J-B-E-C-K-E-R at impactbnd.com. Um, so that's my email address and the easiest way to get in touch with me. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Liz. This was very, very enjoyable. <laughs> All right. Well, let's 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 go back and do work now. Okay. <laughs> Bye everybody. Until next week. <laughs>